Welcome everyone to what's already the ninth episode in the Agilent podcast series. But if you're tuning in for the first time, my name is Victoria Wadsworth and I'm the Associate Vice President of Brand, Business PR and Customer Experience here at Agilent Technologies. Like most companies, at Agilent we're often asked about who we are and what we stand for. These podcasts address who we are as a business by discussing the values and themes close to our heart and the hearts of our customers. In each of our podcast episodes, we investigate a specific theme with the help of three experts, all with their own unique points of view. In this episode, our theme is infectious disease. If 2020 is remembered for one thing, it will be the year an unexpected virus locked down the world and had us change the way we lived and worked completely. As the whole world searched for answers, our guests today, some of whom specialise in infectious disease, found their work to be more demanding and time-critical than ever before. Thinking about where to start with such a huge topic, it seemed appropriate to talk to someone who's focused on the start point of human infections for viruses like SARS-CoV-2. My name is John Epstein. I'm the Vice President for Science and Outreach at EcoHealth Alliance. I study viruses and other infectious agents in their natural reservoirs, which tend to be wild animals. It's a pleasure to meet you, Dr. Epstein. I know that 2020 must have put your work in the spotlight, but I wonder if we could go back a bit. Do you mind telling me what made you pursue such a fascinating specialism in the first place? I just became absolutely fascinated with the idea that human beings impact the, the environment in such a way that we're triggering infectious diseases, which can be shared between humans and animals. And the more I explored that, the more it just seemed very natural to me to, that everything was interconnected. And the more I wanted to find a way to uh, work in public health while also protecting biodiversity and wildlife. So let's start with the story of the year that's just passed, even the story of the decade, COVID-19. And as an expert in animal-to-human disease transmissions, how much do you think we understand about how COVID-19 changed from being an animal disease into a global human pandemic? Now, we don't know exactly how COVID-19 started. We don't know where the first human cases occurred. The idea that COVID-19 began in a, a wet market, just like SARS, probably, uh, well, isn't necessarily true and certainly isn't likely to have happened in Wuhan as originally thought. These are questions that remain unanswered and questions that need to be answered for us to truly understand how COVID-19 began. But what we can be relatively assured of is that this is a bat virus and the question is how did it emerge? Humankind is a notoriously complicated and difficult relationship with the animal kingdom, doesn't it? But do you think animals are solely to blame for the cause and spread of viruses? The other side of this that I really wanted to emphasize is that the fact that these viruses tend to originate in wild animal populations is not the fault of wildlife. This is not a matter of we need to eradicate or remove wildlife so that we can live a safer life. That is absolutely the wrong way to think of this. The number one reason that pandemics happen is because of us human activities, things that we do to the environment around us, whether it's deforestation, agricultural expansion, land conversion, travel and trade, all of these human activities drive diseases to emerge because they affect the way that we interact with wildlife in various ways. And so if we could focus on those behaviors and the places on the planet where they most frequently occur, 
we could start to put in interventions that would reduce the risk of spillover happening, that would limit opportunities for viruses to make that jump from wildlife into people. One of the keys to limiting the risk for diseases to emerge is protecting ecosystems, protecting biodiversity. Because if we limit the impact we have, we limit the damage we do and the alteration we do to some of these environments that we know are incredibly biodiverse and therefore also potential sources for zoonotic pathogens like viruses. So are you saying by fixing some of humanity's more destructive tendencies, we can also limit the risk of future pandemics? It's a win-win. If we avoid damaging these ecosystems, it will actually protect human health by reducing the risk that a virus will emerge from those forests. The EcoHealth Alliance is heavily involved in the United States government's PREDICT program, and I understand that you're involved in that. Could you share a little more about your work there? PREDICT was designed to develop an early warning system to work in parts of the world with local governments and partners to be better able to anticipate and prevent an epidemic that stems from zoonotic viruses, viruses that originate in wild animals and make their way into livestock and people. The whole spirit of the program was in recognition of the fact that the majority of emerging diseases like COVID-19 are zoonotic. They start in wildlife and there's very little going on globally in terms of paying attention to what viruses are circulating in wildlife. And we know which parts of the world are most vulnerable to diseases emerging. And so the aim of the program is to really focus in on where are those pressure points. That sounds particularly important in terms of mitigating future risks. Unfortunately, it looks like there's always going to be the next disease to prepare for, right? We know that we're going to continue to see zoonotic diseases emerge. They probably are happening at different scales in different places to a much greater extent than we even are aware of. And this is exactly the reason why we have to stay vigilant, but also invest resources in preventing pandemics. And if we were properly investing in programs like PREDICT, but doing that on a bigger scale globally, we'd be in much better position to have prevented something like this from happening. Thank you so much, Dr. Epstein. With a better understanding of how organisations like EcoHealth Alliance are working to understand and analyse the origins of diseases like COVID-19, I also wanted to look at the other side of the coin. Because there's also a vast amount of work underway to understand the specifics of the virus itself, which is a field where Agilent is heavily involved in as a leading solutions provider, enabling such research to go ahead. My search for expert insight on the microside of the disease took me to Oxford. My name is Rod Chalk. My job title is Head of Mass Spectrometry at the Centre for Medicine's Discovery at Oxford University. For the last 24 years, I've worked in the field of mass spectrometry, particularly mass spectrometry of proteins. Um, I've been uh, uh, at the Centre of Medicine's Discovery for the last 11 years, where I am in charge of protein characterization by mass spectrometry, and the proteins we make are for the purposes of drug discovery. I understand that you have a particular focus on what's known as spike proteins when it comes to supporting research against viruses like SARS-CoV-2. Can you tell us a little about their importance to the virus? So we believe the spike, has, spike protein has two essential functions for the virus. The first one is it allows the virus to dock the virus needs to be able to recognize a suitable host cell and dock onto that host cell 
that it can then be taken into the host cell for the viral replication cycle to start. The second thing it can do is the spike protein is covered with these complex glycan um, sugars. This is the thing that hides um, the virus from the immune system and we believe this is the thing that makes it pathogenic. This is the thing that makes it such a deadly disease. These are complex sugars which are very difficult for the immune system to recognize. And if the immune system cannot recognize the spike protein as being foreign, then the spike protein can then um, uh, interfere with cells uh, without the immune system being able to stop it. So with the world rather desperate for breakthroughs against coronavirus, I imagine that your services are rather high in demand as a supplier of proteins that enable antiviral research. We have been um, tasked to provide very high quality um, spike protein in quite large amounts um, to supply to other researchers and commercial companies that are involved in therapeutic antibody production, involved in antibody diagnostics and also in production of different types of vaccines. There must be challenges when you suddenly have to work at such scale and with such high stakes. What kind of variables do you have to manage in your work? So the quality of the protein that we produce is absolutely paramount. And our own work has been involved in uh, looking at how we can um, manage that quality. And what we found is that different batches of spike protein that we make are not identical. We have batch to batch variation. And that variation is not in the primary sequence of the protein. That's always the same. What we see is these glycans, these sugars that are on the surface of, of, of spike, they vary. So that when we, when we try to characterize it, we see we have slightly different um, uh, uh, characteristics each time we make it. Because many of these labs are not necessarily experts in glycobiology, uh, but they need to know that the batches of spike protein that they're working with are reproducible so that each time they set up an experiment they should be able to get a similar result. So how have you set about providing more consistency in the proteins you supply? So the method that we that we need to use is we need to chop the spike protein up into peptides and then examine these glycopeptides. So some of the peptides will, will be without a glycan, some peptides will be with a glycan, and the idea is that we can separate these and then uh, characterize them. The second thing we have to do is we need to separate these glycans, these glycopeptides, so that we can then characterize them by mass spectrometry. And then what we've been able to do is build a database. So this workflow and this um, database allows you to do very rapid, and very simple quality control on each batch of spike protein that you make. And more quality control means better output, which means more research. The more we know about um, spike glycans, um, how they're made, where the glycans occur, and, and, and the, their profile and how that profile varies, I believe this will allow us to um, produce uh, better antibody diagnostics. I believe it will allow us to, to possibly generate um, better therapeutic antibodies maybe even better vaccines, and um, there's a possibility also of, of, of developing better drugs. 
It was exciting hearing about the role mass spectrometry can play in solving huge problems like viral pandemics. It reminded me that while Dr Epstein and Dr Chalk supply insights and data to fight infectious disease, we at Agilent also have an important role through supplying equipment and support which can help researchers make their breakthroughs. Our reliability as a partner has never been more important than in 2020. So for my last guest, I visited an Agilent exec who's had a key role in ensuring excellence, customer focus and business continuity for our customers' labs. My name is Shane Elliott and I'm the Vice President of Marketing and Digital at Agilent Technologies. Hey Shane, thanks for taking the time to chat. I've been speaking to infectious disease specialist researchers who've presumably been under enormous pressure to deliver results this year. But before we get into Agilent as a trusted partner of these researchers, how do you think generally Agilent's responded to 2020 as a company and as individuals? COVID-19 has affected almost everybody on the planet and uh, Agilent's not immune to that. So our, our focus as we went into this very unusual time with, with COVID-19 and a, a lot of lockdowns and working from home was to keep our employees' health and well-being as our number one priority. Our senior leaders, uh, including our CEO, came out very early on and, uh, and told us and told the market that no one at Agilent would lose their jobs or take a base salary cut due to COVID-19. It really allowed our employees to, to knuckle down, um, feel a bit safer in terms of their job security and uh, understanding that they'd be able to support their families and really get to work with in supporting our customers. So that's within our walls, but outside of our control, I imagine we've seen our customers dramatically affected by the pandemic. Markets like academia were hit really hard. Uh, the, the labs closed down, the schools and institutes really closed down. Um, so they were, they were running at much reduced capacity and we saw that in, uh, in our engagement with those parts of the market. In, in other cases though, markets like biopharma and now even food, which is bouncing back, uh, they're showing more resilience. Uh, so they're, they're kind of coming back. And there are also some markets that, that are more directly involved in infectious disease research, testing, treatment, et cetera, uh, that have actually ramped significantly. So it sounds like a really mixed bag depending on which industry that you're working in. But I guess one thing that's been constant for customers and for Agilent is the need to pivot and to really change the way that we're working, right? Some of the changes in customer behaviours and preferences have been really obvious over the past uh, you know, eight or nine months. Uh, generally less desire for face-to-face uh, events, face-to-face engagements, face-to-face interactions and a higher appetite for, for virtual digital engagement, but also a higher acceptance for that virtual engagement. So our, our customers have been very hungry uh, in terms of uh, looking for information and uh, looking for support for their businesses and for their laboratories and employees. Our customers have, have flocked to our virtual events. They're all hungry, uh, particularly at the start, we had huge engagement from our customers. It's great that we've seen huge engagement from our customers, but what does that engagement model look like now versus before the pandemic? We, we have a, a range of, of different virtual and digital uh, su- support offerings for our customers. And that, that ranges from everything from remote software installation, remote software configuration, 
to uh, to more cloud-based software um, that allow our customers uh, to remotely access their instruments and also manage their data in a, in a secure way. So we, we have had instances, plenty of instances, where customers are now um, not as many customers in the lab, not as many um, users in the lab. They're actually um, partially running their labs uh, from remote. So that's a really powerful virtual tool for our customers. We have a lot of online training and education programs to support our customers in, in upskilling their, their workforces and on uh, the new way of working. So Shane, would you say that 2020 at Agilent has been all about helping people, including ourselves, adapt and change to the circumstances caused by the COVID-19 pandemic? You can't change the directions uh, of the wind, but you can adjust your sails. And that's exactly how we're focused. Um, we're, we're looking at our customers, their preferences, their changing desires, and we're adjusting our model to, um, to align with that new need. But our fundamental mission hasn't changed. Uh, we, we still are focused on delivering trusted answers and insights to advance the quality of life at Agilent um, and for our customers. I appreciate your time, Shane. Thank you. My three guests had all very different focuses, how diseases originate, how they operate, and how we operate under the restrictions they create. But one thing they had in common with each other, and me, and I'm sure you, the listener too, is that they have a direct stake in reaching a post-pandemic state. It was exciting to hear about their work and to think about Agilent's role in labs like Dr Chalk's. But most encouraging of all was to hear how in some ways we won't necessarily be going back to normal because the pandemic has taught us how to work effectively and succeed outside of our comfort zones. It's that kind of adaptability that Dr Epstein pointed out we need if we're going to make meaningful steps in the prevention of future infectious pandemics. And talking to our guest today, it was clear that as a scientific community and as a species, we're capable of adapting how we work and of raising our game when the moment arrives. After the recent year we've all had, that's got to be something worth celebrating. That's all for this time. I'd like to thank everyone who follows our podcast and wish you a really good start and a happy new 2021.